And let's turn together to Isaiah chapter 52, beginning at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which had not been told them they see, and that which they had not heard they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep, that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of God. Now everybody knows that the Christian faith includes miracles the parting of the Red Sea, the birth of Jesus from a virgin, and so forth. And some people get hung up on the miracles, but they miss the really big, outrageous miracle right at the center of the gospel. In Romans chapter 4, Paul says that God justifies the ungodly. Now that's a real problem. When Jesus walked on the water, that was no big deal. But when God justifies the ungodly, 
he upsets the whole moral order of the universe, doesn't he? Everybody knows that God punishes the wicked and rewards the righteous. But the Bible says that God justifies the ungodly. In other words, God declares the guilty innocent. God treats bad people as if they were good people. And that goes beyond miracle. That's a scandal. Can you accept the mega miracle and the arch scandal of the gospel? It doesn't matter whether you're a conservative person or a liberal person. However you define virtue and vice, you do have a sense of right and wrong. You do form judgments, and you expect God to. We all do. God must judge evil. How then can God justify the ungodly? Well, it's a good thing he does. Good for us. Every one of us is ungodly, and we know it. We have failed to be the people we ought to be, and that deep sense of unease about ourselves, that's why we live in denial. When we discover self-excusing evasion in our politicians, we despise it. We demand an honest reckoning. But aren't we just as shifty? Isn't cover-up the self-righteous strategy of every guilty conscience? Isn't that why we compulsively blame others? Finger-pointing is just a form of self-justification. And what lies behind that but our own uneasy conscience? We may dismiss our sense of guilt as mere social conditioning or our culture's arbitrary invention of right and wrong or our parents' neuroses imposed on us in our impressionable years, whatever. But the next time you have a fight with your spouse or your roommate or office mate, ask yourself this. Why are you so passionate to be found right? Isn't it because you're not really sure you are? And you need the triumph to assuage your own unease. Now, we do have mere feelings of guilt that falsely accuse us. That's very real. But the problem of objective moral guilt, real guilt before God, is still there. And the reason why we love to shift the blame, the reason why our problems are always somebody else's fault, is that we know we cannot bear our own guilt and we desperately want somebody else to bear it for us. This is the game that we're playing in our minds constantly. It shows up in conflict all over the place, in homes and families, workplaces, churches. Every one of us has said more than once, if only I could relive that moment, how I wish I could trade in my record for a better one. But how can we? 
were all like Lady Macbeth, washing her hands of her part in murder and moaning, Out, damned spot, out, I say, here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. And King Macbeth sees his wife coming unhinged under that intense distress, and he he says to a doctor, Canst thou not minister to a mind diseased? Pluck from the memory a rooted sorrow. Raise out the written troubles of the brain with some sweet, oblivious antidote. (laughs) Cleanse the stuffed bosom of that perilous stuff which weighs upon the heart. And the doctor says, nope. Actually, what he says is, therein the patient must minister to himself. Is that our answer? To medicate ourselves with some sweet, oblivious antidote, entertainment, overwork, romance, achievement, self-love, etc., etc. What makes our unbearable guilt go away? Who can bear it for us? The only effective answer is the miracle and the scandal that God justifies the ungodly. God accepts unacceptable people. God honors shameful people. As Jesus steps into our place at the cross and bears our guilt away upon himself. And that's how God, our judge, becomes God, our justifier. And if God forgives you, isn't that enough? Isaiah shows us the success, the sufferings, and the significance of Jesus. You see in the outline there, there are five paragraphs of three verses each. You might want to keep that before you as we go through it. Isaiah is answering a question. Here it is. How can the promises of God come true for guilty people like us? How can the glory of God come down to people who deserve the wrath of God? Now that question has gone unanswered. That has been lingering in the background now ever since chapter 40 and really before that. It's the question of life. How can God love us? Isaiah explains here in his fourth servant song. Let's look at it. First, the servant's success. He was repulsive but redemptive. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. Now, Isaiah is describing Jesus. That's who the servant is. And his mission into this world succeeded. That's what act wisely means. Jesus knew just what to do to achieve his purpose, and it worked. And we look at this language. He shall be high, or it could be translated, he shall rise and be lifted up and shall be exalted. It's, it's not possible to read that 
without connecting the dots with the resurrection, ascension, and triumphant throne of Christ in heaven above, where he reigns with all power and authority. So the suffering servant is not to be pitied, he's to be worshipped. But that is not generally people's first reaction. Isaiah starts out sort of at the end of the picture, after the triumph. In verse 13, then in verse 14, he moves back and, and walks us through it. The first thing people usually notice about a crucified Savior is that he's crucified. Verse 14. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Now what is Isaiah saying? The key is the as so connection. See the beginning of verse 14, the word as. The beginning of verse 15, the word so. Everything depends on that. Isaiah is connecting how repulsive our Lord became in suffering for us with how effective He is in purifying us. Jesus was beaten so badly by the Roman soldiers that no one was asking, is this the servant of the Lord prophesied in Isaiah? Is He our liberation from guilt? The question was, is that human? But in a paradox worthy of God, it was his extreme suffering that measures his extreme power to cleanse. As many were astonished at you, so he shall sprinkle many nations. What does that mean? Isaiah is thinking of what Israelite priests used to do. For example, when a leper was cleansed, a priest sprinkled blood on him to show that his disease was taken away. He was healthy now. He could be received back into the community. He was no longer a pariah. And that's what Jesus does with moral lepers. And on the Day of Atonement, a priest sprinkled blood on the mercy seat, making Israel fit for the presence of a holy God. Jesus is both our priest and our sacrifice and the sprinkling of his blood is not limited to Israel anymore. It says here he cleanses many nations. In other words, his purifying power touches the, the unwashed masses, the unclean, the outsiders. He makes them fit for God. Now, this is new. As Isaiah explains uh, in the rest of this paragraph, I mean, all the world's top people never thought of this way of removing our guilt. That the servant of the Lord would judge our evil by bearing it himself in his own sufferings beyond description. Well, even we who know the gospel struggle to grasp it. And we need to hear it again and again. But this was the joy set before him to cleanse of all their guilt the very ones dehumanizing him. 
one solitary man, abandoned by the many, ground into the dirt under our heel, giving back to us, in return, life-transforming purity. It's the only way lepers like us are cleansed. The suffering servant proves that he is the king of kings before whom we are left in speechless wonder. Here is the wisdom of God. The undeserved sufferings of Jesus outperforming the best of this world's sweet, oblivious antidotes. Secondly, he lived in rejection. Verse 1. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Now we just saw that the nations respond to the servant with awed silence as the gospel reveals his true worth. But now, in, in chat, the first paragraph of chapter 53, the believing remnant in Israel laments how few in that nation received their witness about Jesus. The people closest to him couldn't understand him. It took faith to see the glory of God in Christ crucified, and it still does. How do we break the faith barrier and embrace a crucified Savior? There's only one way. God enables us. Our prejudices are so deep. His arm of power has to fly in low under our defensive radar to awaken within us a new sense of the glory of Jesus. We need God's help to believe because the truth is we're more superficial than we realize. We look on the surface of things. We judge by appearances. And Jesus didn't even try to be impressive at that level. He doesn't respect false appearances the way we do. Jesus, Isaiah says he was like a root out of dry ground. In other words, he was an unpromising little person appearing in a failed nation that history was passing by. So don't think that if, if... You'd been an eyewitness of Jesus, you would have admired him. I wouldn't have. Neither would have you would you. I mean, not even the, the New Testament says not even his miracles made the impact that they should have made. His own family misunderstood him. In one passage, uh, in Mark's gospel, they thought he was crazy. When he traveled around with his disciples, it wasn't like the movies. You know, Jesus is the only one wearing white and is he's beautiful. And his hair is neatly combed and he has this sort of radiant glow and so on. The woman at the well was looking at him eyeball to eyeball, having a conversation she had no idea who she was talking to. Even John the Baptist wondered who Jesus was and was tempted to, to disbelieve. He, Jesus wasn't, he just wasn't special in the ways that count with us. In fact, Isaiah says he became hideous in his suffering so that people shunned him as one from whom men hide their faces. Why did Jesus sink so low? 
He had to become like us for us to become like Him. But if we'd been there, every one of us would have despised and rejected Him and turned away to follow after really cool people like Barabbas, you know, or, or maybe Caiaphas or Pilate, depending on your politics or maybe just the mood of the moment. It's the way we are. Think about it. When the only true remedy for the guilt that torments us and threatens us appeared right in front of us, our emotions were dead and our assessments misguided and our minds corrupted. And he accepted it as the price love had to pay to give us our lives back. He was our sin-bearer, verse 4. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Maybe we needed to, to feel better about ourselves. I don't know. But He was wounded for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Do you see how Isaiah writes as if we were actually there at the cross? Well, you know, in a sense we were. If it wasn't our guilt that required the death of Jesus, what did? Not his. Remember Rembrandt's painting, The Raising of the Cross, how he paints himself into the picture as one of the men crucifying Jesus. He not only portrays Jesus, he includes himself in the scene. That's what Isaiah is doing. He's not only describing Jesus, he's telling our story too. We cannot say, well, if I'd been there, I would never have shouted, crucify him. And at this point, Isaiah, verses 4 through 6, he brings us right into the heart of his message. What is he saying? He's saying that Jesus was indeed a man of sorrows. That's true. But they weren't his own sorrows. They were ours. In a way we don't understand, Jesus substituted himself for us at the cross where the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Theologians call it imputation. From the Latin verb imputare, to charge to someone's account. Because guilt must be paid for. It can't be swept under the rug. You know that from your own experience. When you're wronged, when you're injured, someone has to pay the cost, either you or the other person, but it doesn't just go away. It has to be righted. And so it is with God. There is no way God can turn a blind eye to the evil attacking his universe. What did he do about it? Out of love for us, he charged that infinite debt to our substitute. 
He laid our unbearable guilt on Jesus. Substitution is the very meaning of love. In A Tale of Two Cities, Sidney Carton takes another man's place at the guillotine and defeats Madame Defarge's lust for revenge. And as he's about to die, a young girl, also to be executed, realizes that Carton has changed places with the condemned man, and she tells him, I think you were sent to me by heaven. Dying love, real love, comes from God. And our part is to say to Jesus, I think you were sent to me by heaven. Look at him. By faith, look at Christ on his cross. His blood is flowing down into pools at the foot of the cross, but it doesn't lie there in waste and loss. It flows out toward us, guilty, sad, us. His blood flows out toward a woman who has shamed herself in a desperate craving to be loved. His blood washes her shame clean off her. Then that shame flows back to the cross where it shames Jesus and is no longer her burden to bear. His blood flows out toward a man held in bondage to lust. He discovered, this man has discovered too late that there's no comfort there, but only emptiness and self-hatred and destruction. But the blood of Christ flows out to that man, cleanses him entirely, and takes that dreadful wrong back to the cross where Jesus makes it his wrong, freeing that man forever. The blood of Jesus is flowing out towards sinners of all kinds and all needs, absorbing their guilt, their shame, their loss, their tears and despair. And Jesus says to you from his cross, I don't want you to bear your burden one moment longer. Let my chastisement be your peace. Let my stripes heal you. We really are, all of us, like stupid sheep wandering away from him going our own way, living by our own uncomprehending strategies, getting nowhere. Who can deny it? But look what God has done. He laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Fourthly, he died in innocence, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. 
Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So the death of Jesus was a miscarriage of human justice, but it was also our Lord's clear-headed choice. He wasn't caught in a web of events beyond his own control. He willingly laid down his life. Verse 2 said that Jesus was like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Now verse 7 compares Jesus to a lamb led to slaughter and a sheep silent before its shearers. What's the point? The point is his death was not a capitulation to weakness. It was an act of deliberate control. He was not overpowered. He submitted to abuse. And there was no way he deserved it. Verse 8 laments how thoughtlessly he was gotten rid of. It was just another execution. Verse 9 says he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. In other words, in both his actions and his words, he died in entire innocence. And the final insult, the final indignity, was to be buried not alongside martyrs and saints, but with the wicked rich. Who but Jesus has the moral majesty to bear our guilt away? Only innocent sufferings and full sufferings can fully atone for guilty sufferings. But if the story of Jesus had ended there in the grave, he would have been completely forgotten. We wouldn't wouldn't be here today. But the empty tomb proved that there is more to his death than anyone realized. Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. That's who we are. He shall prolong his days endlessly. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, the whole work of salvation. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, his wisdom, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The death of Jesus was a lot more than a human plot. It was a divine strategy. When Jesus made his soul an offering for sin, he was doing the will of God. Romans chapter 3 says that God presented Christ as a propitiation by faith in his blood. He fully satisfied the proper demands of infinite justice on our behalf. 
And now the Jesus who suffered under Pontius Pilate is, as the Creed says, seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty with absolute power and every moral right. Jesus is acting as the executor of the saving will of God. He is not suffering anymore. He is satisfied. His offering for sin was perfect and he is enjoying the pleasure of righteously making many to be accounted righteous. So don't you see? The cross is not a theory. It's not a dreamy religious ideal. It's a power. And it's working. The one who descended to unimaginable depths is now enjoying the spoils of supreme triumph. He is actively saving today. He treats transgressors as his friends and shares the spoil of victors, victory with his enemies. That's who he is. That's the way he is. How can you say no? How can you say no? Some of you have been dancing around this decision all your lives. Explain that. How can you say no to infinite love that loves you in the way most relevant to your most urgent needs? He stands before the Father making intercession for those who drove him to death because he is a power that evil cannot quench or even understand. And nothing will ever rob him of his hard-won right to justify the ungodly. I think we should trust him, don't you? What else are we waiting for? Paul Tournier, the Swiss psychiatrist, wrote, The guilt that men are never able to efface, in spite of sacrifices, penance, remorse, and vain regrets, God himself wipes away. And we are at once freed from our past and transformed. Look, if God accepts the sacrifice of Christ for human guilt, won't you? What you need to do is admit without flinching your real moral guilt. And then turn your eyes by faith to Christ, the sin-bearer, as he takes it away. All of it. Forever. Would you please do that? In the name of Almighty God, it's my privilege to urge you now to do that. Father in heaven, we pray for the arm of the Lord to quicken our sense of the glory of Jesus. In his name, amen.